this podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with symposia guests. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Nicholas Baban, the executive online editor of the New England Law Review and the host of today's podcast. I'm very happy to talk to our guest today, Professor Osler. He is a law professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law and a former federal prosecutor. His work advocates for sentencing and clemency policies rooted in principles of human dignity. Additionally, the character Professor Joe Fisher in the Samuel Goodwin film American Violet was based on him, and in 2014, he was the subject of profiles in Rolling Stone and the American Prospect. Today, he's joining us by telephone to discuss his upcoming publication with the New England Law Review, titled First Step Act and the Brutal Timidity of Criminal Law Reform. Please welcome Professor Osler. Professor Osler, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Professor, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us. And do you think you could give our listeners just a kind of deeper dive into your legal background, um, specifically as it relates to the importance of this article, too? Sure. Uh, when I got done with college, I had a history major. I was living in the city of Detroit, and there, there weren't many jobs you could get. And my first legal position, uh, I worked as kind of an office gopher and as a process server in Detroit. And, and you know, when you see that, that aspect of it, the very ground level, um, you find the stories really compelling. And that's, that's animated the way I look at law ever since, uh, is that the policy we see from the top has to derive from the, the stories of uh, the things that are happening at the ground level. And so I went to law school, and when I was in law school, my first summer I worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, and I was just captivated. Talk about great stories. I mean... The, the cases that they had were important. They mattered. They were solving problems often, and and I loved it. Uh, I committed myself to doing something like that when I was done, and I did. Got done with law school, went back to Detroit, um, and ended up working for the U.S. Attorney's Office for five years there. And uh, in fact, the uh, the amount of I'm not sure I was the best prosecutor in the history of the world, uh, but I sure learned a lot. And one of the things that, that I saw when I was in Detroit at that time was a lot of crack cocaine cases. Um, that's what was coming down the pike. And I believed in our work um, that you know crack cocaine was definitely a negative in the society there. It was causing real destruction in families and communities. But over those five years, I also saw that our approach to it, which was incarceration, and long-term incarceration wasn't working. And uh, eventually I left, I started teaching, and I started to work on the particular problem, the, the 100 to 1 ratio in the federal sentencing guidelines and the statutes that uh, sentenced someone the same for 100 grams of powder as one gram of crack. And it was um, working on that for years and years and years something that, that everyone seemed to agree was wrong and not seeing it move for so long and then change so very slowly that was really the genesis of, of this article. So this 
your background really what it sounds like kind of gave you the foundation for kind of viewing these things firsthand these issues of slow reform and um i think it's uh interesting how you talked about how you were one of the prosecutors um in this kind of era implementing these kind of policies is that correct yeah, and, and that really matters because if you're a prosecutor, and I know that some of the responders to this paper uh, are, are fellow prosecutors as well, um, you know, it is a deeply, if you do it right, it's a deeply emotional undertaking. The cost of being wrong is tremendous. And if we convict someone who's innocent, if we send someone to a longer term than's necessary, we're, we're depriving them of nothing short of their freedom. And that weighed really heavily on me once I started to understand that, that in some cases, that is what we were doing. Um, and, and again, that's, that's what pushed me in this direction and <laughs> let me see uh, from, from that perspective what was going wrong. Now, now that our listeners kind of understand how this topic came to you and your background uh, and your experience with this topic, can you tell us about what particular area of criminal justice reform your paper talks about or focuses on? Yeah, and part of it is what was I was just talking about, which is the, the struggle to change the 101 ratio in the crack guidelines and, and statutes in the federal system, something that we're seeing even you know recently with the First Step Act that evolution of addressing that enduring problem is still ongoing. But that's not the only thing. Uh, we've got other examples. For example, the failure to take marijuana out of Schedule 1, where it sits with heroin and other you know, severely dangerous narcotics. Um, everybody knows that's wrong, that marijuana doesn't belong in Schedule 1, but it, it doesn't change. And then also, I, I wanted to look at some of the state systems, because that's where most of the action happens, that the, the federal system is a fraction of the criminal cases in the United States. And if we look at a state um, like California, they've had significant reforms relating to incarceration. They've lowered imprisonment. Part of that's been achieved, though, by shifting people to jails. Uh, and then there's other examples to look at. For example, Alaska where you had them pass a reform measure that uh, seemed to be working, and then the backlash was so severe that it was uh, it was repealed. Um, so just in terms of, uh, you know, what area of criminal justice reform you can look at, frankly, no matter what area of criminal justice reform we look at, we see the same pattern, and that is uh, a profound slowness of pushing the ratchet back against retributivism. And you, your paper focuses a lot, uh, or mainly on the First Step Act. Could you tell us a little bit about the First Step Act and kind of what it did for those changes and reforms to the criminal justice system? Sure. The, the First Step Act passed in December of, of uh, 2018. President Trump signed it at that time. It had bipartisan support. It did a number of things. There's a lot of provisions in there. Uh, and many of them fixing things that, that had been wrong for a long time. For example, one of the provisions involved the stacking of certain gun charges. And a lot of that reform came out of one case uh, that involved a man named Weldon Angelos out in Utah. I was Weldon's attorney 
for his clemency petition, so I, I know his case pretty well. What happened there was that he was uh, convicted of selling marijuana in a relatively small amount on three occasions to the same informant and had a uh, allegedly a, a gun with him each time. And what the prosecutors did was use provisions in the statute to stack those mandatory sentences, one on top of the other, to the point where the judge had to give uh, Mr. Angelos a 55-year sentence. That was outrageous. And so that uh, mechanism was fixed in the First Step Act. The, one of the other things that it did that relates more directly to what I've been talking about so far is that it uh, made the crack changes, the changes in the crack law, retroactive. It allowed people to go back and seek to be resentenced if their sentence would be different today under the present ratio, which is much less than 101. Uh, so that was a that was a significant change, um, and it was a, a long time coming. Now, kind of on that same note of a long time coming, your paper frequently discusses um, criminal law reform and refers to it as kind of the slows. What does this mean? Yeah, uh, when I talk about the slows, um, that's a, that's a historical reference going all the way back to the Civil War that uh, George McClellan was the uh, general that, that Lincoln was relying on to to prosecute the war against the South. And over and over again, McClellan uh, had excuses for why he wasn't attacking the South and gave up chances, frankly, to um, really defeat the South quickly. You know, he was promising that he'd be in Richmond in a certain number of months, and then he'd have all kinds of excuses for why he wasn't doing that, including that the, the horses were fatigued. And Lincoln eventually got, got pretty tired of that and said that, you know, McClellan had the slows. And I think it's a pretty apt analogy because what the big cost of McClellan's uh, failure to, to attack was that the war went on and on and on and lives were lost. And it's the same thing that we see, for example, with crack. We, we could have fixed this a long time ago and it would have lowered the imprisonment rate, would have freed a lot of people. Uh, but there was a timidity to our approach that is the same timidity that Lincoln saw in McClellan. So the slows um, kind of have historically plagued criminal justice reform. That's kind of um, what you've just been talking about, what your paper really talks about. Um, what are the, some of the causes of the slows kind of, you know, timidity or um, otherwise? What are the causes of the slows in criminal justice reform? Yeah, and where we get the, you know, how we see this coming about, a lot of times we don't notice it. Um, you know, it's easy to explain where the increase in uh, sentences comes from. You know, in the mid-1980s, we had a ratchet way up. What's harder to perceive is why it's so hard to ratchet it back down. And a lot of what I talk about in, in uh, the, the paper really is derived from the work of Rachel Barco at NYU. Uh, you know, Professor Barco is, is a brilliant analyst of things. And, um, she wrote a book, Prisoners of Politics, that, that came out last year that uh, really attacks some of these issues and, and names what some of the problems are. When I talk about that ratchet, uh, you, know, you can imagine how that would work. You turn a ratchet one way and then it, it holds. and That's the way um, higher sentences tend to work. Is it's easy 
to raise sentences because politicians can say we're being tough on crime. It's very difficult to push it back the other way. There's a number of reasons for that. A lot of it's enmeshed in, in politics and the media. Um, you know, regarding the media, if crime goes up, then we uh, you know pay attention to that. But when it goes down, we don't pay attention in the same way. And that's because when something happens, when a crime occurs, that's news. But a crime not occurring is not news in the same way. Uh, we don't have a victim. We don't have a, a, a situation to report on with the flashing lights. Um, you know, no one turns on the news and sees someone saying, well, you know, I'm downtown Minneapolis and, and there were no murders here tonight uh, because that's, that's not news. It's just it's not the same kind of story. Now, that uh, is replicated and, and enhanced by the way people run for office, that there can be a lot of gain politically by making people afraid of crime if you promise to, to address that crime. One of the fascinating things that, that Professor Barco highlighted that I talked about in the paper is that uh, you know crime has been going down for decades, and significantly, too. And yet, people perceive that crime is going up. Uh, and it's because uh, of, of the way the media covers it, and also because of the way some politicians talk about it, the way that they, they emphasize um, you know, the, the fear factor. And we'll look at something that's, that's short-term or localized and, and acts if that is a universal problem. Another factor is race, that uh, you know, the, the great tragedy of America is, is race, and it's embedded in criminal law and decisions that are made in the politics of it. And that, unfortunately, um, the perception of many people that criminal law involves people of another race um, I think makes people less interested in, in fixing the problems because they don't perceive of people like themselves as being hurt by over-incarceration. Um, and, and that's deeply unfortunate and, and cynical because, of course, we're all in this together, that Americans are Americans. Certainly. Um, another thing, too, that, that comes into play is the power of prosecutors to affect policy. That uh, at the federal level and in a lot of states, that is who pushes policy more than anyone else. And it's particularly acute at the federal level, which is important because that's, that's the lead dog in a lot of ways. For example, uh, in other areas such as trade, um, commerce, and national security, the president has an advisor who's not embedded in uh, a department. But with criminal law, the primary advisor to the president is going to come from the Department of Justice. It's going to be the attorney general or policy people from the DOJ. There's not an advisor who uh, isn't embedded within that building full of prosecutors. And that's one reason that it's so hard to push things the, the other way. There's a, there's a mind experiment that I throw out there a lot that I think really relates to this. And that is, imagine that someone is running for president right now. And, uh, you know, well, since Joe Biden is running right now, we'll imagine that he announces this, that he says, when I become president, I am going to take the uh, federal defender for Washington, D.C. and make that person the attorney general, and I'm only going to take advice about criminal justice from federal defenders. Well, people would be outraged. They'd say, that's not fair. They represent one perspective in the, in the whole. It would be true. But the fact is that we have the mirror image of that 
in that really only prosecutors have direct input and we don't have the outcry. And that's part of what, what drives, uh, drives the slows as well. Another thing I talk about is the atomization of advocacy groups. Uh, it's, it's interesting because, it, you know, I'm an advocate on some of these issues and know a lot of other people that are involved in advocacy. And there's a lot of leaders and not many followers that, uh, you have a lot of folks who have an organization involves them, maybe a few others, um, that are working on the same things as a lot of other people. And that means that there's not the focus that you find coming from the other side. You know, the Department of Justice is hierarchical. It has an ability to focus on things because things are going to eventually come through the Attorney General and sometimes the Deputy Attorney General. Whereas on our side, we have a thousand people talking about the same thing at the same time. And, and that's difficult. Uh, and finally, the last thing I want to talk about is there's an appeal to incrementalism. That is, uh, you know, having little changes over a long period of time is something that has political appeal because victories can constantly be claimed. Uh, but at the same time, if you are going to put the ratchet back bit by bit by bit, that means that the people who are suffering are the ones who are imprisoned who are serving the two long sentences who you haven't quite gotten to yet. And when you add up those numbers, it's significant. Now, to kind of go off of that, um, in your opinion, would you see the changes made during in the First Step Act as a small click on the ratchet or a big improvement towards larger reform? Um, I think it's a, it's, it's a small uh, turn of the ratchet in terms of the number of people it affects directly. Uh, hopefully, it will be significant in a different way, though, which is that it's going to signal to conservatives, broadly, and Republicans, that this is a position that is okay to take up that is consistent with a conservative outlook, uh, a freedom-loving outlook, um, in a way that they haven't embraced broadly until this time. So I'm hoping that it, it does have that broader effect beyond the numbers that are directly impacted by it. What would you say could be done to accelerate the process of criminal form since it seems clear we have a tradition and history of, you know, the slows, as you would say. What could accelerate this? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is that it would be great if we could create some unity on the part of the advocacy for criminal justice reform. And uh, that would be best done by major funders um, agreeing to do that. Right now you have funders who are funding individually each of the thousand leaders. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. I'm not saying that the policy decisions should be turned over to funders, um, but rather that uh, a more, a, a better focus definitely would, would help. The, another thing too is that I think it's important to confront racism directly. And this is difficult because, uh, you know, when, when things are, are said, when policies uh, come forward that are, have racist outcomes, we need, to, we need to name that. We need to shame it. One of the things that happened with crack is that, you know, at the start, I think people had, had different motives for wanting to create the 100 to 1 ratio. But after 10 years, after 20 years, and we saw that over 90% of the people getting these sentences were black, um, even though that was far out of proportion that people were actually um, using crack. 
that there does need to be an advisor to the president, for example, who's not from DOJ, who represents a possibility of reform without having an institutional bias. The last thing, and I think this is very important, is that those people who advocate for criminal justice reform, including myself, we need to be bold. We need to, we need to ask for big things. In the field of clemency, for example, right now, uh, you had President Trump let out Alice Marie Johnson. That was great. I advocated for her publicly to, to be released. Um, but then everything ended pretty much. We had three more uh, people who were somewhat like, like Ms. Johnson who were released in the last batch. But there hasn't been numbers that are significant. And uh, I think that the ask needs to be bolder for things like clemency, things like the reform of sentencing uh, to happen. So that all these people who say they agree will be pushed to action in a way that will be really meaningful. And, you know, thank you for that. That's, um, those are definitely good advice. And, I'd, you know, it'd be interesting to see if those things come about. Now, our audience consists primarily of law students. What do you think specifically uh, students coming out of law school or recently admitted uh, lawyers can do to combat some of these issues from the line level? Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's talk about law students first. There's a couple things that law students can do. And one is to raise the profile of the issue. You know, write, you know, write about it. Write an op-ed. Write a law review note. Um, that involves some of these issues because that's, that has made a difference in the past. Uh, also, if it's possible, get involved in a campaign on either side and, and promote this issue. It's surprising how much of uh, an effect, even a single question in a rally can have of making a candidate focus on an issue. Those are both things that, that people can do now. Uh, you mentioned people who are graduating. If you go into the field of criminal law, there's there's something I'd really urge, and that is that I, I'm from a family of social workers. And one of the great things about social workers, when I talk to audiences of social workers, is they always work at both retail and wholesale. They have clients, um, they connect those clients to resources, but they're also trained to have an awareness of the greater system, what's just and unjust, efficient or inefficient, and, uh, and will work hard not just to help the client who's in front of them, but to change the system that hurt them in the first place. Um, and I think that's something that, that we lawyers, especially as we enter into the profession, need to keep in mind that that we do have clients. We do have cases that we're working on. Those are important. They're at the center of our practice. But we need to have a wide focus at the same time that allows us to, to name the broader problems and the injustices and to use the stories that we see in our practice as a basis for advocacy for those broader changes. Would you say there are any other trends or issues or challenges that criminal law is currently facing as well? Yeah, and I mean, I, this is super current in terms of going on right now, but you know, we've got the, the COVID-19, the coronavirus, is threatening our society as a whole, the economy, the, the existence of people we know. Um, and one of the things that is really dangerous about it is that, that prisons and jails are petri dishes for all kinds of diseases. And this has the potential in the same way it can overwhelm cities. It's going to really quickly overwhelm the capacity 
because uh, we, we, you know, the people that are in prison, they were they were sentenced there for a reason. I was a prosecutor. I obviously believe that some people should be incarcerated. However, it's not supposed to be a death sentence. And we have to be very careful not to be cavalier about the health effects of something like the coronavirus on people in prison. And there needs to be action taken right now um, to, to address that. Have you any? Have you seen any kind of examples of cities, um, locales, or you know, states addressing this issue kind of positively, or uh, as an example that other states or uh, local areas can follow? Yeah, I mean, here I'm sitting in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis, right now, in, in Hennepin County, where Minneapolis is. I believe they've thinned out the jail population by about thirty percent by releasing some people. And, uh, and being very careful about bail requests of people going in so that they can make bail and not have to go into that jail. Um, so what we've seen is a fair number of efforts like that, often by progressive prosecutors, um, to address the, the jails. What's been, there's been less action on is the prisons. And this uh, matters especially because you've got, you've got some prisons that have significant numbers of elderly prisoners who are at most at risk. And uh, that's where probably we need, we need action right now. I totally agree. And um, this definitely has, you know, hit everyone by surprise, but yeah. never a better time to figure these kind of long-term things out. And I'm sure it'll be interesting to see if decisions made you know, you talked about requests for bails, decisions made now, whether they'll influence requests in the future as well, once this kind of all um, subsides a little bit. But before we wrap things up, do you have any upcoming projects that you can talk about to give our listeners a little sneak peek? Or... Yeah, I do. And it's, it's uh, I'm working on a, a couple of clemency projects to reform clemency systems. It relates to, to what I was talking about before, the way social workers work at retail and wholesale. Um, you know, I have a clinic here where with my students we seek clemency um, for federal prisoners. And one of the things we've learned is the system is really broken. It's enmeshed in the Department of Justice. It um, you know has too many levels of bureaucracy. There's a reason it doesn't work. And what I've been working on with others, including my students here at St. Thomas, is to, to try to push for a better system. We're at a great moment of opportunity for that um, in that we can simultaneously push the current administration to change the system they have, given that they've expressed an interest in doing more clemency, while also um, pushing whoever the Democratic opponent is going to be to take a firm stand on, on reforming that system. Uh, here in Minnesota, I'm um, working on the same thing. We've got a broken clemency system here where, and this sounds crazy, but to get uh, a pardon even long after you've served your sentence here in, in Minnesota, you have to appear personally in front of the governor, the attorney general, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court, almost always without a lawyer, and plead your case. Then they talk about it and decide right in front of you. Um, and that has to be a unanimous vote. It shouldn't be surprising that not many people seek clemency and, and, and uh, relatively few get it. So we're trying to change that system as well. That is incredibly interesting. And if one of our listeners wanted to contact you to discuss the research in the upcoming paper that you have with us or your other academic writing, 
or any other issues, uh, how would they do that? Probably the best way would be to follow me on Twitter at OslerGuy, uh, O-S-L-E-R-G-U-Y, um, and send me a direct message on Twitter. Uh, when I respond to those, I get them, um, and I've had a, a number of fascinating dialogues that way. Well, Professor Osler, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk with us. We look forward to having you back soon. And if any of our listeners are interested in coming onto this podcast as a guest or have suggestions for future guests, please feel free to reach out. You can email us by emailing forum, F-O-R-U-M, at N-E-S-L Thank you, everyone, for listening. And that's a wrap.